Okay. So it's uh, 9.30. We're going to get started this morning. So this morning we have a special treat. Of course, we've been um, looking forward to this for months now. Um, we have, of course, Dan Serrett and his family here, uh, Dina and his children, um, who I'll, I'll let him introduce to you their names. <laughs> but uh, Dan, we've been supporting for more than a decade now at the church. And so we're very uh, thrilled and privileged to be able to support them in their ministry to Israel. Uh, so Dan lives in Israel, and um, he actually did his undergrad here at Stony Brook University, just a few miles up in the uh, other state up there. And, um, and uh, he married Dina uh, there. That's where he met, right? Uh, his wife, Dina, who's also here in the back. And um, now he's the Israel director of Jews for Jesus, which is, uh, sounds like a very important title. <laughs> but he directs the, both the Hebrew and the Russian ministries there. So we're excited to hear what he's been doing over there. And so let's, uh, let's give him a welcome in Calvary. Yeah. Well, shalom, everybody. Oh, man, we're going to have to do better than that, okay? Let's try it again. Shalom, everybody. It is such a privilege and an honor for me to be here. And you guys are partners in ministry. And I, we feel that we are your extension in Israel. And um, it's really um, a privilege to be here. Pastor Joe has become a personal friend and a great encouragement. Um, so it's, it's always great to be back here and to share with you what um, God is doing in Israel. Now, am I doing anything wrong? Should I? Is it okay? Okay. So um, this is our plan. For um, this morning, well, first of all, let me let me introduce. Um, actually, we don't have all all of our kids with us. Um, our our oldest, Yael, she's actually on a mission trip in New York City with Jews for Jesus, so she's engaged in ministry today. And um, our middle son, um, Ethan or Ethan, he is in camp, so he's in upstate New York someplace having fun. But we do have our youngest son with us, Yoav, who is there in the back, right next to Dina. Yav, can you wave? Here we go. He even stood. Very good. It, it was an early morning for him. So, Anyway, um, it's great for us to be here with you. So the plan for this morning is like this, okay? I'm going to, since it's Sunday school, we are going to open the Bible, okay? So I want us to look at some scriptures and um, kind of walk through some uh, verses and talk about them a little bit. And um, that's going to lead me to kind of to a presentation of our work in Israel that you have been supporting and partnering um, us with. And what I want you to do is I want you to take um, a pen and, um, or on your iPhone, whatever, and uh, write up some questions because at the end we're going to do some Q&A. Okay? I don't know that I'll have all the answers, so I might say, well, you're going to have to ask Pastor Joe about that or about this, but... Um, we'll try to see if we can, um, if we can answer some, some uh, questions, okay? So that's our plan. So uh, before we begin, let's just um, open with a word of prayer. Lord God, Father, thank you so much for this, um, this Sunday morning. Lord, we thank you that um, your grace, your love, your mercy um, are renewed every morning, day by day. Lord, we thank you for this privilege that we have to gather as, um, as your church, as your body, as Calvary Community Church, to gather together and to, um, to give you this day, this morning. Um, Lord, we're here to um, draw near to you. So, Father, as we look at scriptures, as we pray, as we worship, as we fellowship, Lord, we pray that um, all we do, that it will bring honor and glory to you and that you would help us to grow and develop and uh, become um, more efficient, better disciples um, of you. Um, our King, our Master, our Lord. We love you so much. Lord, uh, we pray that you bless now the reading of your word and the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, you know, the reality of ministry in Israel is, um, is such that we minister to an unreached people group. Israel has 6.4 million Jewish people 6.4 million Jews, but only about 6,000 Jewish people who 
believe in Jesus. Now, if you got your Bibles, would you open to the book of Romans? Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. And um, while you open, let me just give you a little bit of a, of a background here to our passage. Because the book of Romans is known as kind of Paul's uh, magnus opus, if you will. That's like um, his theology, his complete um, message sermon that he would give to a church that he would go to. If, if he was going to go to a church and, and do a month long of teaching, he would teach him the, the book of Romans. That was his main message. And in Romans chapter 10, before chapter 11, he talks about um, Israel. And he talks about um, the rejection that Israel um, has for Messiah, for Jesus. Okay, So um, we see that same rejection today. We see the fact that today in Israel, like I mentioned, um, only 6,000 of 6.4 million Jewish people believe in Messiah Jesus. By the way, that is less than um, 0.1% of the Jewish population. That is how unreached the Jewish people are with gospel. And Paul in, in chapter 10 says, yeah, they rejected Messiah. They said no to Jesus. We understand that in verse 21, quoting um, Isaiah, this is what he says to Israel. He says, you know, Israel has rejected um, Jesus all the day long. I, God, have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul here is saying, listen, these, these Jewish people, man, they are disobedient. They, they're not following God. Their hearts their hearts are hardened, right? So with that, on a human level, I mean, I don't know about you, but when somebody rejects me, I mean, I, I reject him. So Paul continues, look at verse 1 of 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has God rejected Israel? Has God rejected his people like they have rejected him? He's asking this question, what a great question. Continue. May it never be. For I too, Paul says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Verse 4. But what is the divine response to this? I have kept for myself 7,000 men whom have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what is Paul doing in these verses, right? He's asking this grand question. Hey, great, we get it, right? Israel has rejected God, but has God rejected his people? No, he hasn't. And to give an example, Paul gives us which story in the Bible? Excuse me? Elijah, right? Right, I was testing, making sure you pay attention. He gives us this the story of Elijah. And you remember the story of Elijah, of course, right? His battle with the prophets of Baal and right there on Mount Carmel, right? And, 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 and you remember what happens? You remember the story? You remember how God um, delivered and magnified himself, right? But Elijah is discouraged because Elijah is saying, man, am I the only one? I mean, wow, look at all of Israel, they're all following, they're all pagans, they're all going after foreign gods. And what is God's response to it? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God's response is, not everyone, not everyone. We continue, verse 5 to 8. In the same way then, there will also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. 
and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So let's stop right here for a second. So here, Paul is, is continuing, right? He gives the Elijah example, and then he says, listen, in the same way, today, just like in the days of Elijah, today, there is still a remnant. There are still those who have not bowed their knees to Baal. And I stand here before you as an example of that remnant. You know, even today in Israel, there are the 6,000. We do have Jewish people today who believe in Jesus. I was raised in a typical Israeli home, secular home. Both my parents are atheists. Um, But even though they um, taught my brother and I that men created God and not vice versa, of course, I never really bought into my parents' atheism. I always believed that God was real. So as a small child, as we would celebrate the Jewish holidays, and, you know, like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and so on, I always believed that God was real. So when we would, for example, um, read the Haggadah, read the story of Passover, um, during Passover around the table, I believe that God really delivered us out of Israel, that he really performed the um, the ten plagues and that he really parted the Red Sea for us. So I never really bought into my parents' atheism. But as a secular Jew living in Israel, I didn't really know also what to do with my, with my faith. And so I grew up and from first grade, by the way, in the Israeli school system. We studied the Old Testament. And as I studied the scripture there, my, my faith in God increased. And then when I was 13, it was time for me to get bar mitzvahed. You guys know what a bar mitzvah is? Right? For those of you who don't know, that's the, that's the ceremony that moves um, a young Jewish boy into adulthood. And you study with an Orthodox rabbi in the synagogue and, and you chant a portion of scripture. And I, of course, went through that ceremony. And then when I was 14 and a half, my dad's job moved us from Israel to New York. So my mom and I moved with my dad. So I graduated from Syosset High School in Nassau County in the other state. And uh, then started attending Stony Brook University. And um, I have a Bachelor of Science in Math, so I was studying math in university. And while going to school, I got a job who, tutoring students who needed extra help in math. And um, one day in the math learning center where I was working, um, a girl walked in and she had some uh, math questions. So I helped her with her math homework. And then um, at some point, um, after I helped her, she uh, recognized my accent in English, and she asked me if I was Russian. And I said to her, no, I'm not Russian. Um, I'm Israeli. And she said, wow, that's wonderful. I'm also Jewish. So we had something in common. So we continued in the conversation. And um, as we continued, at some point, she told me that she believes in Yeshua, Now, being fluent in Hebrew, I know what the word Yeshua means. The word Yeshua is the Hebrew word for salvation. But I've never met anybody who is called Yeshua. Today in Israel, no one is called Yeshua, okay? So I asked asked this girl, I say to her, hey, who is this Yeshua that you believe in? And she tells me that it's Jesus. And I was surprised. I, I, I was shocked for two reasons. Number one, um, I was surprised because I never knew that Jesus' real Hebrew name was Yeshua, was salvation. Second of all, I never knew that there were Jewish people who believed in Jesus. I've never met such a person before. So I wanted to know more, um, but we both had to go on that day. So we set up an appointment for a few days later, later to meet for lunch. And it was during this lunch that this girl opened the Old Testament scriptures to me. And she shared with me prophecies about the Messiah. And then she showed me in the New Testament how Jesus, how Yeshua fulfilled each and every one of those prophecies. And a few days later, I prayed to receive the Lord. Praise God for that. And two years later, that girl and I got married, and it's Dina, so I praise God for that as well. So there is a remnant. 
there is still a remnant today. You just heard my story, but there are so many more and other um, Jewish people, um, both in Israel and outside of Israel, who um, believe in Jesus. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Let's continue with verse 9 to 12. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they didn't, didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? May never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failures is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Let's stop right here. Maybe you're wondering, man, what is Paul saying? What all of this means? Well, Paul is, right, giving some verses to show how Israel's rejection and Israel's um, blindness in many ways is, is something that God is in control of, right? They have eyes not to see. Now, of course, God wants them to come to faith, but it seems that there is that there has been a higher purpose to um, Israel's rejection of Messiah Jesus. I mean, of course, God knew it before the foundation of the world. He knew that they would reject his, um, that they would reject his son, that they would reject Messiah. But look at how gracious God is. Because what did it mean that Israel rejected Messiah? Well, it meant that salvation came to all of you. Amen? Aren't you excited about that? I mean, that's what, that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, hey, Israel rejected Messiah. Why church at Rome? What was the purpose of it? Well, so that you would have salvation. So that you would have Messiah Jesus. And that is wonderful, awesome news. And we see the truth, we, we see this truth today in the world, you know? And we see this reality where today there are a lot more Gentiles for Jesus than there are Jews for Jesus, right? And that is great and that is wonderful. Now, if their transgressions is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Verses 13 to 15. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Wow. Wow. Paul here is saying to this Gentile church in Rome, he's saying, hey, you have salvation. You have Jesus because of Israel's rejection. But guess what? Now you have a task. Now you have a calling. God didn't reject his people. God is not like us. God is faithful. God is faithful. And now he wants to use you, the church, to reach Israel to move them to jealousy, to reach them for Jesus. And of course, the church's obligation is to reach everyone for Jesus, to reach the whole world for Jesus. And you know, I am so honored to be here with you because um, I know that as a church family, you have taken these words of the Apostle Paul and you have said, wow, we do want to reach the world for Jesus. And we do want to move um, Israel to jealousy. And that's why we're partners in the gospel. And it's our privilege to be your extension in the land of Israel today. A land um, that Jesus walked not so long ago, but a land that is in desperate need of 
Messiah Jesus. Jews for Jesus, we exist to relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of Israel. We read about that plan today and, and, and we recognize that God is the one who is um, doing the work. God is the one who is removing the blinds from um, people's eyes. And uh, we're just um, coming along for the ride, right? I mean, it's his work at the end. You know, Jews for Jesus, um, our branch in Israel today is our largest branch. Jews for Jesus, of course, is an international ministry, so we have branches all over the world. But our largest branch is our, lar- is our branch in Israel, where we actually have um, 33 staff members. Uh, we just added one. And um, you may wonder why. Why is your largest branch in, um, in Israel? I mean, why isn't it in New York or in Los Angeles? Well, that is because Israel is the most Jewish country in the world. Here in this country, in the United States, there are um, between 5.8 and 6 million Jews, and that Jewish population is decreasing. Where the only Jewish population in the world today that is increasing is in Israel. And it's also the most unreached Jewish population in the world. And, and that's why we're there. That's why in Jews for Jesus, we're focusing more and more of our resources, of our strategies to reach um, our people in the land of Israel today. And that's why our largest branch is there. And Dina and I have the greatest privilege, really, to, um, to lead this um, wonderful, godly group of uh, men and women as we uh, bring the gospel to the people of Israel. Um, our ministry is all about making disciples. That's what we're all about. And um, that young lady right there in the picture is Carolina. But I'm not going to share with you her story of how she came to faith. Because I'm going to do that in this sermon. Okay? So you got to wait. I know you're excited. I know you, you, you want to hear the story of Carolina. But you're going to wait on that. Um, Our our mission really at the end of it is to make disciples, to make Jewish disciples for Jesus, the Great Commission. So um, that's really what we're all about. But um, how do we practically and pragmatically do it? I mean, do we have a a methodology or, or, or one way that we do it? Well, the answer is no, not really. We have many ways, many different methodologies of communicating the gospel. And, and we see the same in, um, in Jesus' ministry here on earth. Think about it. And when Jesus went around, of course, he was preaching the gospel. He was calling people to, to, to come to believe in God and in him and, and to repent. But if you read the gospels carefully, you would note that Jesus spoke differently to different people. So, in John chapter 3, he speaks very differently um, with Nicodemus versus John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? He uses different languages. He speaks so differently. And um, today, God is still speaking to people, but he does it differently. And uh, we have different methodologies, different ways of communicating the gospel. But remember... It's still the same message, right? It's still the gospel message, okay? So let me give you some examples of our methodologies of um, what we do and how we do it. So the first methodology, and this is the one that Jews for Jesus is, is well known for, is what we call proclamation evangelism. Proclamation evangelism is really going fishing, um, going out there, finding um, those people who are open, Right? So throwing a bait and, um, and looking for those men and women that want to know more. And our objective here is, is to proclaim the gospel, to be as loud as we can for all to see and hear. And, and those that want to know more who catch the bait, um, we take their, their contact information and then we follow up on them. And why do we follow up? Because we want to make disciples. Right? We want to we reach them with the gospel so we would meet with them one-on-one, open the Bible, hopefully build a relationship and, and minister to that individual. So how do we proclaim the gospel? What do we do? Well, we go out on the streets and hand out gospel tracts, uh, put up um, evangelistic media campaigns, both online, on, on the web, but also on billboards and on buses and also standing in traffic. 
um, with, with huge um, gospel signs like you could see in the picture. Um, any way that we can to proclaim the gospel and broadcast the message out there so that those who are open would, um, would contact us and we can begin building a relationship um, so that um, we can make disciples. Second methodology that we have is that um, we love to create special events for gospel engagement. And here, the objective is to, um, to, to create a special event using something that people love, a hobby, an interest of theirs, and, and to invite people to come into an event. And, and, and during that event, whatever, whatever it is... Um, whatever subject it is that we're covering or whatever, whatever it is that they're engaged in, we want to bring it into um, a gospel conversation and we really want to engage them with the gospel. So you ask, well, what kind of events? Well, art galleries, um, different um, lectures, um, women's tea, um, sporting events, um, Hebrew classes. Um, you know, there is uh, the largest the most recent largest Jewish population to move to Israel is the Russian-Ukrainian population. In Israel today, there's 1.2 million Russians speaking. So from Russia and Ukraine in the past 20 years, 25 years, we've had a major move of Jewish people. And you know, when, when they come to Israel, they have a lot of needs. And we want to serve them and we want to help them. And one of the, the, the ways that we have found to be very effective is to put up Hebrew classes for them. And, and as, they, as we teach, as our staff comes in and teach them Hebrew, we, we teach them the gospel. And we engage them in gospel conversation. And we are finding this methodology to be especially fruitful. So creating special events for gospel engagement. Also in Jews for Jesus Israel, we recognize that the body of Christ in Israel is small and it has many needs. So we are also committed to raising up the next generation of, um, of Israelis to be a light to the Jewish people, of Israeli believers. So we have um, children camps, summer camps, that are actually going on right now that we lead in partnership with another congregation in the land. We also have a youth group that we lead every, every week out of our ministry center in downtown Tel Aviv. And we also have Bible clubs for kids. And we really want to minister to kids of believers. And as you know, many times those kids are not believers. So we want to minister to them and early on have them grow up in our youth group. And then um, as young adults... We want to continue that ministry while they go to the Israeli Defense Force. Military service is mandatory in Israel. Boys do three years, girls do two years. And then as those kids, as they go to the army, they have many struggles. And, and our ministry staff, our young adult ministers in Israel, have many opportunities to encourage them, to minister to them. So we also have a weekly Bible study for soldiers. And as those young adults after the army... And we want them to come in and, and maybe even stay at our ministry center in Tel Aviv to do life together where they could get them um, deeper, stronger roots in the faith, discipleship, um, through Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and of course, outreach. Now I say all of this to say, hey, you know, um, we need your prayers. We need to continue to, um, to build the kingdom of God in Israel. We need to continue to partner together to bring the gospel. You know, the, bringing the gospel to an unreached people group um, is not always the easiest thing, especially in Israel where there are many um, oppositions and um, there are many orthodox groups who, who oppose the messianics and oppose our faith and oppose our efforts in Jews for Jesus. So we need them, God's people, to stand with us in prayer. Um, I was gonna, I'm going to say it also in the sermon, but um, if you'd like to become a prayer partner, um, this card um, that you should have received with, uh, with your bulletin um, is a prayer card, and you can uh, remove this small piece right here and then fill out the large piece and then become a prayer partner of our ministry. If you fill out your email address, we'd love to um, send you our monthly Israel prayer updates and um, 
really continue in our partnership in bringing the gospel to the land of Israel. So I'm going to be quiet now, and I'm going to turn it over to you for some Q&As. And I don't know if we need the mic, the handheld, or if you could just speak loudly. Yeah, we're okay. Good. Are there any questions? Yes, sir, in the back. Yeah, so the Moish Rosen Center, that is our ministry center in downtown Tel Aviv, and that's where we do a lot of those events I was talking about, the galleries, the women tea parties, and so on. And that is, that is our ministry center. Out of the center, that's also where we have, we host our, the youth group, and then really the events that we do for the most part are out of our ministry center. Also in the ministry center, we have um, apartments there for some of our staff and also for, for some of those young adults who um, want to come and do life together, like I was mentioning, um, who want to come in and, and be engaged in a deeper discipleship. And we have that opportunity um, for those as well. So um, it's really an amazing center that's um, being used a lot to reach the neighborhood, the community that it's in. And we wanted them to serve the people who are there. And uh, through those events, we've really been successful to do that. And most importantly, to engage them with the gospel. So, Yes? You know, before Christ comes back, there's, there's supposed to be a mass conversion of national Israel. Do you think you could live to, you could live to see that? Yeah. So <laughs> the question is, is that before Christ comes, there's supposed to be a big conversion of Jewish people, and will I be alive to see that? Is it possible for me to be alive to see that? Well, um, it really depends on... I mean, obviously, at the end, when we look at eschatology, at the study of the end of age, it really depends on where you stand, and different ones would have different stand. Um, the, the first answer that I would give to you is, is that I think we are seeing a lot of Jewish people coming to faith now. And I would hope that we would continue to see that and that that number would increase exponentially. So I think we're going to see a lot more. And um, I really hope that we'll see a lot, lot more in Israel and, and in the States and so on. In terms of a massive revival, um, I know that there would be a day where that massive revival is going to happen. But that's going to happen, I think, after the rapture. So, um, and I think God is going to use the rapture to really bring a lot of people to himself, including Jewish people and including some 144,000 where they're going to be an evangelistic force in this world. But then um, I'm going to be raptured out. So um, I won't be here for that. And um, that's kind of my eschatology. Yes, over there and then. Yeah, how do the Jews get jealous? That is a great question. And I think, first of all, um, we, we always tend to kind of generalize, and we have to remember that Jewish people are different. I can talk to you about myself. What, was, what really struck me about Dina when she, when she shared the gospel with me was the fact that she had, um, in many ways, it made sense to her. She figured it out, her Jewishness, wasn't just, oh, yeah, I'm Jewish and it doesn't really matter, but, but it kind of came together, you know. And, and I think in many ways um, that's something that, that as Gentiles we could really do and say. I've heard it said, and I think it's a great line to say, if you have a Jewish person that you're trying to provoke to jealousy, to say something like, hey, why is your Messiah living in my heart? How is it that I'm following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish God, and you're, you're rejecting him and you're not? How, how is it? You know, stuff like that, I think, is very helpful to recognize that, um, that what we believe in um, as the church is really natural for Jewish people to believe in. It's not a foreign, man-made, you know, this uh, foreign religion. No, it's, 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 the Jewish, it's the Jewish faith. You know, it's the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it looks so different 
than Judaism today, you know, and I understand that, and I, I don't believe in Judaism today. Judaism today is man-made post-Jesus. Our faith is the original. Our faith predates Judaism today, you know. Our faith is, we believe in sacrifices. We believe in, in the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Messiah, you know. Judaism today rejects all of that. So in many ways, Judaism of today is man-made, pagan, foreign religion, you know, where we have the true faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does that answer your question? Yeah, good. good. Yes. Uh, my question is more uh, regarding where do you see more of a response among the younger generation or the older generation? Yeah, so in Israel today, we're seeing the most fruit and the most... Um, the most people who come to faith in Jesus among the Russians speaking. And they tend to be older. Um, so that's what we're seeing. But in terms of openness and curiosity and interest, um, I, would, I would say among the secular um, university students, secular young adults. Yes. And the question? I did, and actually you answered it. I was going to ask oh. you what the response was from the Russian. Right. Right. They're the most open among, um, among our people. So like, for example, if you take in 2016, we saw about 53 Jewish people um, come to faith in Jesus through our ministry in Israel. And out of those 53, um, close to 40 were Russian speakers. Yeah, so um, first of all, the opposition doesn't come, um, for the most part, from the leadership. The laws in Israel really protect um, all of our freedoms. So if you just look at the law, the dry law, um, you know, allows for freedom of uh, religion and um, assembly and freedom of speech and so on. So um, theoretically, the opposition shouldn't come from the government, and really, for the most part, it doesn't. It comes from individuals, um, for the most part, 99% from the Orthodox Jews. Now, the Orthodox Jewish population in Israel is a minority. Only about 20% of the population are Orthodox Jews in Israel. But they are very loud, very vocal, and they are in the government as well. So that, that has some challenges. Practically speaking, our opposition would come when we, when we proclaim the gospel. You know, so if we're out on the streets, we might get um, an Orthodox guy come in and become very physical with us, and, you know, and both physically and also verbally. And um, you know, and we can we can we've had incidents in the past where we, you know, our staff was pushed, shoved, hit, smacked, so on. Um, and then there is an organized um, anti-missionary group in Israel, and they're the ones who kind of. And on a regular basis, try to do, um, try to oppose the gospel more, um, both the congregations and the different parachurch ministries, like Jews for Jesus in the land. And you know, they they publish articles, and they could also come to your neighborhood and kind of distribute flyers, warning everybody in the neighborhood: beware of the evil missionary who lives in this and that place, and you know, stuff like that. So. Um, so they try to have some organized opposition. Yes, in the back. So what would you say um, would be like aspects of the gospel that people of Israeli or Jewish background seem to appreciate more um, that's maybe different from like the things that Americans appreciate about the gospel? Wow, that is a very good question. <laughs> Excellent question. I don't know if it's different from what, what Americans hear, because I don't... I mean, I know some of the context here in America, um, but one of the things, of course, um, America is different, you know, um, Texas is completely different than New Jersey, you know? So I'm not sure if it's different than your own context here in, in this part of New Jersey, but um, I think in Israel, what, um, what, what, really, what, what people really... Once they understand... And of course, we can never fully understand. But once they, once they get a glimpse of the grace of God, understanding that 
wow, in spite of myself, and, you know, and, and, and even though God knows all my flaws, you know, and, and, and all the junk that's in here, wow, he still loves me, and, and he came and he died for me, that while I was yet a sinner and, and yet an enemy of God, he came and, and he gave his life and he died for me, and I think, I think the grace of God is something that's very um, capturing to those when they finally understand it, that, that, that they could never, and it doesn't matter what they do, um, God doesn't love them on that basis. God loves them because of who he is, because of his own faithfulness, because of his own um, you know, long-suffering, because of his own love and, and grace, and because of, of who he is, you know? So I think that's, um, that's something. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, thank you. So I think that um, it's not like one scripture fits them all. I think it also depends on the person. You know, um, one time I asked the founder of Jews for Jesus, Moish Rosen. I said to him, I said, Moish, you know, what's the, I'm a, I'm a starting up missionary. What's the one most important thing that I need to learn how to do as a missionary? What's the, what's the key to being a good missionary? And he said to me, he said, Dan... Learn how to listen. Listen. Okay, and what he meant by that is that, you know, anytime when we do ministry, anytime when you do ministry, right, because you're all ministers, you all need to go out there and be the church, be a light, you know. Learn to listen to people, you know, and then based on their needs, based on, on, on what you hear them say, you know, and minister to them, give them Give him the scripture, give him the Bible, give him, give him the answer, you know. And so, so there isn't like one, it really depends on the individual and on the needs. Now, having said that, um, I must say that, you know, walking people through the Old Testament prophecies, like, like was my story, is always something that's very helpful. So Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and then, um, well, you probably know all those messianic prophecies by heart, right? If not, look at the back of your Bible. Sometimes they have them or check online. But, then, but I think the Messianic prophecies really speak volumes because they were written so much before Messiah. And, and I mean, they, they, they give the picture. They give the picture of the gospel. I mean, Isaiah 53, um, crucifixion language, and Psalm 22, crucifixion language of piercing and there were no crucifixions that were done during those days in, in Israel, you know? So, yeah, you and Debbie. Yeah. Among the different groups that you minister to the Jewish people, what is their concept of understanding about Jesus? Is there a type of stereotype about Jesus? Yes. There are many stereotypes in Israel about Jesus. And that's, I think, one of the, one of the struggles and one of the things that we're really trying to, um, to change because um, the average Israeli thinks they know um, everything there is to know about Israel, about Jesus, sorry. The average Israeli thinks they know everything there is to know about Jesus because in their schools, um, they study about Jesus, okay? It's not like Jesus is avoided in the school system. They study about Jesus. But what they study about Jesus is all in the context of anti-Semitism. And they study um, that the roots of anti-Semitism was the fact that um, it came from um, Christians who blamed the Jews for murdering Jesus Christ. So sure, Jesus was a Jew, whatever, but look what everybody did in his name. And as, and as those Christians, how did they get that the Jews murdered uh, Jesus Christ? Well, they read, they read the New Testament. And in the New Testament, they told them that um, they need... To, um, they need to persecute Jews because Jews murdered Jesus, you know? And they repeat that, and, and that becomes the basis of your understanding. And every time when you study history, world history, and you get to a point where Jews were persecuted, well, guess who persecuted the Jews? It wasn't the Muslims, it was the Christians. 
you know? So when we studied the, the Crusades, it was the Christians. When we studied the Spanish Inquisitions, the Christians. The Holocaust, the Christians, you know? So the stereotype is, hey, you know, New Testament is an anti-Semitic book, and Christians, and for the most part, are going to be anti-Semites, and they're going to, you know, they're going to blame us for killing um, their God. Um, and Jesus, you know, he was just um, a Jewish man that lived during the time of the Romans, and that's it. And he started a new religion. He's not Jewish anymore because he went and. And he started a new religion, and then um, those Christians, they believe in three gods, not one god like us Jews. Um, so there is a stereotype that, that Christianity is not a monotheistic religion. Um, those are the big ones, you know. And of course, we have a big job to communicate and to say, wow, no, you really, really, you don't know the truth, you know. Sometimes I feel like standing in Israel and just uh, yelling, fake news, fake news. Oh, no, no. Just kidding. But, uh, yeah, that's how I'm going to start up. Yes, you had a question. Um, along the same lines, like, um, what do Jewish generally, I guess, what is their acceptance of the scriptures? Like, for example, Dina came up to you, and then she showed you Isaiah or yeah. Psalms. But um, my son mentioned to me, he talked to one of his friends who's Jewish, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, your Bible is different from my Bible, your Old Testament. So is there not an acceptance? Yeah. So, um, so you actually are asking here two questions. So I'll start with the first one. And the first one, the first question, as I understood it, what do the most Jewish people think about the Bible? Now, most Jewish people are seculars. They're either atheists or agnostics. Not just Jewish people in this country, but also Jewish people in Israel. Jewish people all over the world are mainly atheists or agnostics. Would an atheist believe in the Bible? Of course not. That's Jewish people for the most part. You know, my parents don't believe that the the Old Testament is the word of God. No. And most Jewish people in this country, you understand that, right? I mean, Hollywood. Most of Hollywood is Jewish, right? They don't believe in the Bible. Bernie Sanders, Jewish, doesn't believe in the Bible, right? And that's Jewish people for the most part. Now, um, there are Jews who do believe in the Bible, and those who believe in the Bible might say something to your son, like his friend did, oh, your Bible is different. And, well, and he might be meaning a lot of things. He might mean, first of all, the fact that in our Bible, in our book, we have the New Testament, where they would just have the Old Testament in their books, in their Bible. And he might mean that maybe the order of the books is different, because if you take just an Old Testament from a Jewish synagogue, you'll note that uh, the order of the books are different. But in terms of the translations and the words themselves, they're not that different at all. You know, like, as you know, we have different translation in English. And there is, there is like a Jewish tra- tra- um, translation, and it's very similar to our English translations as well. So I would have your son challenge his friend and say, hey, let's open it up, I'll show you that it's not different. Sure, I have the New Testament. I understand that you don't have it in your Bible because you don't believe in it as being the Word of God. That's fine. But if we just look at the Old Testament, you will see that it's, um, it's so pretty much the same. Like, um, believing or Orthodox Jews that believe in the entire Old Testament, right? Not just like the first five books of Moses or... No, so, okay, so Orthodox Jews, when it comes to the Bible... They believe that the entire Old Testament is the Holy Scripture, is the Word of God. But it gets a little bit more complicated than that because Orthodox Jews don't believe that the Old Testament was written for everyone. Nobody can understand the first five books of Moses. Nobody could understand the prophets. The sages of old, the rabbis of old, I guess they can understand parts of the writings which are the book of Psalms and the wisdom literatures and so on. And so, and, but that's why we have the Talmud, which is rabbinical writing, and that's why we have that, and that's really what we need to understand. And, and so they have different levels 
of, of revelation from God and the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, pretty much that's something that you can't really interpret for yourself. It wasn't written for everybody. It was just written for the rabbis. And, but the Talmud, which is also authoritative and also, it's not equal to the first five books of Moses, but, but it's, it's right after the writing. It definitely has some, some authority as well from God, so that we can debate and talk about and so on. So they have different levels of the Word of God, and they don't believe that it's all written to everyone like us. You know, we, we believe, right, the Bible is for all. Yes? Yeah, so as long as I live there, how many of the traditions have I participated in? Well, I guess throughout my life, I've pretty much participated in most of them, um, you know, just throughout my growing up there. But today, and on a regular basis, really the, the only traditions that we participate in are the holidays. Um, all those holidays um, are found in the Bible, and all of them Jesus celebrated, the one that we celebrate. Um, and when we celebrate them as a family, we always make them um, gospel-centered. They're always, you know, it's always about Jesus. Um, we don't do all the rules and regulations that the rabbis do. I don't even think we can do it. I mean, they've got so many rules. It's crazy. But, um, you know, we do it. We do it in our home. So, like, for example, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Every year, even though I complain about it, and I'm pretty lazy, we do go and we build one of those booths. And um, No, we don't spend seven nights in them, but the kids at least do one or two nights in them. You know, but, but as we sit and as we have meals there, we, we teach our children that, hey, you know, Jesus said some pretty incredible stuff during that holiday, and he, and he pointed to him, and that holiday has great significance to us. You know, and all the holidays do, really. Because Jesus made that connection for us. So that's what we do. Yes? Going back to what Danny was asking about, like, the stereotypes of Christ. So like, they, they think that Christians are, a lot of them are evil or something. So, so um, should you, should, so a Jew asks you, what do you believe in? Like, you shouldn't say you're a Christian. So can you say, like, I'm a follower of Yeshua? Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and we actually do that. I wouldn't say that they think that Christians are evil. And, and because Israelis, for the most part, understand seculars. So they would definitely understand that probably most people in the States are seculars. They're not all automatically Christians or whatever. They would say more that Christianity and the religion um, is evil, you know. But we say exactly like what you said. Like, like in Israel, I wouldn't use the word somebody says, hey, who are you, what are you, I wouldn't use the word that is normally used for Christian because in Hebrew, that word, they associate with Catholics, they associate with priests, and so on. I say, hey, no, I'm, they ask, hey, who are you, what are you, how would you define yourself? I would say, I'm a Messianic Jew, you know. I'm a Jewish believer in the Messiah. Jesus follower, love it, that's great, you know. Is somebody, did somebody have a question or we'll go back? Yeah. Um, do you, is there a difference, do you know the difference between like relations between Palestinians and Jews versus Palestinians and those who believe in the Messiah? Again, and um, hopefully it won't escalate, because if it escalates, then we may have war. Dina, we don't like war, right? War is not fun for us in Israel. So please pray that things don't escalate. Um, listen, if there is war in Israel, we might just have to stay here forever. So We don't know. Do you guys have room for us? I'm just kidding. We'll have to go back anyway. But, um, yeah, so... There's definitely tension. Um, among the believers, the Palestinian followers of Jesus and the Israeli follower of Jesus, did you get the point that there aren't too many of us? Well, among the Palestinians, there are more evangelical Christians, so they're a little bit bigger group than us. 
Um, and we definitely pray for one another. And there are different gatherings where leaders try to come together. But the reality is, is that the populations are very separated. It's very difficult to understand, but there is actually a fence and a checkpoint and a, and a wall. You can't just go here and there, you know. So it's very difficult. It's a very difficult reality, you know. Um, so it's hard to have a testimony because we can't really get to one another. And not to mention the fact that for the Palestinian Christians, they don't share the same freedoms that we do. So they don't have freedom of religion in the Palestinian Authority and under the Hamas regime and so on. You know what I mean? So sometimes they, they can't um, be public about their faith they can never be public about their association with Israelis because that's going to bring a lot of um, a lot of heat on them, you know. And I don't and I don't pretend to say that I know or understand exactly what they have to go to because I don't, you know. So um, there is a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties. And my hope and prayer is that we could have more opportunities to show um, the truth of the gospel and how really the only way that Palestinian and Jews. Israeli Jews can, can be together is because of our faith in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have relationship with, with other um, Arab believers in Jesus, because in Israel, there's plenty of Arab Christians. There are those who are Israeli citizens who live in Israel, who enjoy all the freedoms that all of us Israeli citizens have, who are Arabs, Arab Christians. And with those, they're all a part of our churches. Some of them are pastors, and they have Jews in their congregation and so on. So, um, but it's different than the Palestinian Christians because Palestinian Christians, um, some of them, don't have Israeli citizenship for whatever reason. Does that make sense? Okay. Somebody else said, yeah, right here, and then. Same thing. We, we, we have local churches in Israel, just like this church. We have local churches everywhere. Dina and I have the privilege of leading a local church in Israel. You know? And you'll hear the story of Carolina. We met her because she came to our church. And anybody who comes to faith in Jesus, to Jews for Jesus, in Israel, in the U.S., in Russia, wherever, we always connect them with the local church. They need to be in fellowship they need to go in their faith, get discipled, and so on. The reality is, is that sometimes Jewish people come to faith, they pray with you to receive the Lord, and they're not ready right away to go to church. So we continue the discipleship, and little by little, we bring them in. But our goal is, is so that they'll be grounded in a local congregation, so they can grow in their faith, and so our missionaries could now you know, release that person and have time for somebody new to disciple Roy, you're the last one. Yeah. So, um, wow, thank you for that last question because that's exciting. Can't wait to share that with you. But, um, yeah, every, every, every city in Israel pretty much has a congregation. But the one thing, congregations in Israel look different than congregations here or churches here because for the most part we don't have our own beautiful buildings um, that, by the way, love the renovation. I haven't been here in three years, so I don't know how new it is. But the last time I was here, it didn't look so beautiful like it is now. We don't have the means. And so, so congregations in Israel are very small, and pretty much in every city, we would have one. The average size is probably anywhere between 30 and 40. There are about 100 of those congregations all over the country. Big cities would have more congregations, like in Jerusalem. There are many different churches. And so does that make sense? But, but pretty much there are congregations everywhere, a lot smaller. Now, Dina and I, we live in a suburb of Tel Aviv. 
And um, the name of the city is Petach Tikva. Don't worry, I'm not going to expect you to remember it or to be able to spell it. That's fine. But anyway, um, our congregation is a congregation that was established before Israel became a state uh, by the Southern Baptists. And before Dina and I moved, the congregation kind of left the Southern Baptists for whatever reasons. Um, but we still, um, we still rent our facilities from, um, from the Baptist village, from a property that's owned by the International Mission Board. And um, for many years, it was just um, kind of a struggling international congregation. But this past year, we don't know what happened. We really haven't done anything different. But in this past year, all of a sudden, our congregation have really experienced an amazing growth. And we got to a point where we decided, because we were averaging about 100 people, again, it's an English international congregation, and we said, wow, you know what, in our city, which is a large city, a suburb of Tel Aviv, there isn't any congregations in Hebrew. So we decided, because our congregation was doing so well, and we have a family who joined the church, who they, they are elders, and they really, um, you know, trained ministers, so they have joined kind of our leadership team. And um, we said, hey, why don't we start a Hebrew-speaking service? in our congregation. And um, on June 17th, before I flew over here, um, I, um, I, was, I was speaking in our church. So we have two services, one in English, one in Hebrew. They're identical. And I was, I'm just so floored by what God is doing. In the English service, there were 120 people. In the Hebrew service, there were 40 people. Out of the 40 people, there were 15 unsaved Israelis. You know? God is doing something amazing in our church. God is doing something amazing in um, the greater Tel Aviv region. God is doing something amazing in Israel. And um, thank you so much for partnering with us. And um, thank you so much for this time. We'll just uh, close down in prayer. And uh, I want to thank you for coming all the way out here to our little congregation. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, just stay up here. We pray for you and your family. And uh, we're grateful that... Uh, that we're able to partner with Dan Sered and his and his ministry for the gospel there. Um, that we're allowed to we're able to have that sort of influence all the way across the world uh, for the people who God loves. So let's just pray, uh, Father. We thank you for Dan and the privilege of supporting him and his ministry for Jews for Jesus and and now even in this church um, that he's uh, that they that they've planted and they're growing. Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you for his faithful ministry through many years of hard, hard service um, in, in hard soil and the faithfulness that he's demonstrated, um, the, uh, the love for your people, uh, the, the, the willingness to undergo persecution and, and difficult things so that uh, those who have not heard can hear the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would bless him, his ministry, his family. We pray, Lord, that you would help him um, in this whole, in the area of Israel, Lord, that the uh, the violence would not come, that war would not come, um, but that Lord, uh, you would keep them safe, and that the gospel would be able to go forth. We thank you in Christ's name, Amen.